<clears throat> so I have a friend, uh, let's call him Andrew, and uh, he came to faith in his uh, kind of like early 20s, uh, like about university time. And uh, he came from a family that um, wasn't, uh, they weren't believers, they weren't Christians, but they also weren't extremely, extremely religious. But what they did do was, uh, you know, once every couple of weeks, you know, they'd go to the uh, Taoist temple and perform certain ceremonies. And um, once he became a Christian, you know, he, he was faced with this question, you know, what, what does he do about that? Does he continue to participate or does he not? And so the way that he dealt with it was by having like a different excuse every week for not going. So what would happen is on one day he would have a headache, on a different day he would sleep late, on a different day he would have an exam the coming day. And after a while it became a bit suspicious why he kept having diarrhea every month or so, right? And um, so eventually it kind of came out what is the reason why he didn't want to go and, and that resulted in a bit of a blow up in the family. And uh, anyway, it was a difficult time for him. Now the thing is this, um, this kind of issue, the, the how do we relate to the religious practices of our neighbors, is actually a, what seems to me a recurring issue, a big issue, that I've seen for, for most of my Christian life, especially here in Singapore, where many people come from different religious backgrounds, right? And uh, like every couple of months, I hear somebody talking about it in some context, whether it's you know, going to funerals or weddings or uh, Qingming or Chinese New Year or something like that. Now, this may affect you personally in the sense that you may be a first-generation believer and you come from a different religious background and you're wondering how do you, do you continue to do the things that you did all your life with your, with your mom and your dad and your brothers and your sisters? Um, or if it's not in your family, it may be your friends, your community. I, I have one friend who uh, tells me that every year, you know, in years community, they do the ghost month, some kind of ceremony with some food and he's always invited to attend and he always says, no, I'm not going to go. And this is a, a community event and that just creates some tensions between him and uh, the, the community that he's living in. And if it's not you that faces this, and you know, God bless you if you don't have that problem in your life, at some point you're going to deal with other people who are facing that question. You know, younger believers, people who come to you and ask for counsel. How do I deal with this? Now, this is sensitive. Uh, it's possible to offend lots of people while doing this. And uh, I, I just want to assure you that today, some of you will be offended. And if I don't offend anybody, then I've done something wrong. But it's not just about what you do with food offered to idols, right? Um, although that's a specific question that's being dealt with within the text that we're going to look at, the how we think about the food offered to idols has got much larger implications. It connects to how we think about what God is like, what he expects of the Christian life, um, how, how spiritual things work. Now, we are here, 25th August, we're looking at the freedom and idolatry bit, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and I just want to highlight that actually um, this question was picked up first in the sermon on 1 Corinthians chapter 8, um, and we've got had this long break, and we're going to come back to this. So, um, big picture outline of 1 Corinthians. So, um, you've heard this many, many times. So, Paul has set up this church in Corinth, and he's there for a while, and then he goes away to a different place. And then the Corinthian church has got some issues, and uh, he receives a report about how they're behaving, and he also receives a letter from them asking certain questions. And so Paul responds to the report of their behavior, and Paul also responds to some of the questions that they have, right? And uh, in the entire book, the main thing that he tries to get across is that our beliefs, our actions must be in line with the gospel. And in terms of the details, you know, this is a bit 
chapters 8 to 10, where he's responding to this question about food offered to idols. Now, why this particular question? So, first bit of chapter 8, he begins, you know, he draws a deep breath and goes, okay, now, about this particular question that you asked about, but why are the, first, are the Corinthians wondering about this and asking him this question? And the answer is that the city of Corinth in the first century was in many ways like the city of Singapore in this century, in that it was a religiously plural place with lots of different people from with lots of different religions. Uh, it is a big cosmopolitan city, a, a center of trade. So just lots of different people uh, with different beliefs. And the issue of food offered to idols was confronted by Christians in a couple of different settings, but maybe three major settings. One major setting was this, that of food being offered in uh, worship ceremonies in the large temples in the city. So the city has got a bunch of big temples. Uh, they tend to be like uh, on, the, on the big hills, like right in the center. And there, there would be these ceremonies where there's worship of the gods, plus, you know, some degree of, uh, you know, uh, uh, food sacrifice to the idol. A second thing that happens, a second scenario under which the Christians in Corinth was, were dealing with uh, food offered to idols or meat offered to idols was in the marketplace, right? So the Temples are there, people do stuff in the temple, but then down in the market, if you go there to like buy your chicken wings someday, what you'll find is that a lot of the food there is actually leftovers from the temple worship, or in some way when it was first slaughtered, it's kind of dedicated to, to that temple god, and then it's brought to the, to, to the market. And so the, the Corinthian Christians were wondering, but is, is that okay if I eat that food? And a third instance where they're dealing with this kind of issue is in private people's homes, right? So let's say that they're you know, they're very reserved. They decide not to go to any temple worship services of other gods. They decide never to go to the market to buy any meat over there. But just their neighbor says, hey, come over for dinner. And they go in there, and there is food that has been offered to an idol before. What, what do they do then? Do they say, okay, I'll eat it, or, or no, I won't eat it? And so that's the kind of situations that the Corinthians faced, right? So three major types of uh, scenarios, food in the... Uh, pagan temples, food in the marketplace, or food in other people's private homes. And so the Corinthians look at this and they say, so is it okay or is this not okay? And they ask Paul the, an the answer to that. And this is what Paul says to them. He gives them an answer in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, 9, and 10. And you see that quite clearly in chapter 8. Chapter 9 seems to kind of wander off topic a little bit, but then he's still kind of on the same idea and he comes back to it in chapter 10. And uh, chapter 8, Pastor Chiming preached, you know, a couple of uh, weeks ago, right? And so I'm going to, like, pretend to be Pastor Chiming and kind of do the, kind of, like, just kind of summarize his sermon again for you one more time. This, I think, was his most important slide where he tries to answer the question, can I eat food offered to idols? Uh, sometimes no, sometimes yes. It is definitely no if the person who is eating that food still feels like it is somehow connected to idols or worship of idols. And it's yes if the person you know, understands that, you know, there is only one true God. These other idols are nothing, but with some certain restrictions. That to love people is more important than to exercise one's independence. And therefore, sometimes, even if they think they can eat the food, they should still abstain from it so that they're not wounding other people's consciences. So that's one issue. And there's another issue that began to be hinted at, that there are spiritual entities behind the idols being worshipped. But that doesn't come out very much in chapter 8, but we're going to look at that a bit more in chapter number 10. So Paul's answers in 8, 9, 10 
of uh, 1 Corinthians, there's actually a bit of a tension that you find between what he says in chapter 8 and what he says in chapter 10. So I'm going to show you both of these. I'm just going to show you just one verse uh, or a couple of verses each from chapter 8 and chapter 10. So in chapter 8, he says this. We know, uh, chapter 8, verse 4, we know that an idol has no real existence. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do, if we do eat. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block for the weak. Right? So basically he says, it's okay. It doesn't make a big difference whether or not to eat. But don't wound other people's consciences. Don't stumble other people. So he says that in chapter 8. And then check out what he says in chapter 10. Chapter 10, verse 19. So what do I imply then that food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to become participants with demons. Like, hello, Paul, make up your mind, right? So, we've we, we asked him a question, yes, no, maybe, and he's given us kind of like a strong yes and then a strong no in another place. So, so what's going on? And just separated by two chapters, right? Like, as if he's expecting that we forgot what he read in chapter 8 by the time we got to chapter 10. So what is Paul's answer in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 to this? And what we're going to do now is we're going to read through the whole text of uh, chapter 10. We're just going to go from the front to back. And then at the end, we're going to pause. And then we'll kind of go through slowly, like section by section within chapter 10, okay? So, <clears throat> so I'm going to read 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1 to chapter 11, verse 1. And it's in the ESV and the English Standard Version. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now, these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, and it is written that people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did, and they were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did, and they were destroyed by the destroyer. Now, these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed, lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man, God is faithful, and He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, He will also provide the way of escape, that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there's one bread, we who are many are one body. 
for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel are not those who eat the sacrifices, participants in that altar. What, what, what do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagan sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God, I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than He? All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Uh, verse 25, eat whatever is sold in the market, in the meat market, without raising any questions on the ground of conscience, for the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you're disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any questions on the ground of conscience. But if Someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it. For the sake of the one who informed you, and for the sake of conscience, and I don't mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by somebody else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I being denounced because of that for which I give thanks? So whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. Give no offense to the Jews or to the Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many that they may be saved. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Is that clear? Not really, right? So at the end of all of this, we're still kind of left our heads, scratching our heads a little bit. Uh, you know, wait, did he say yes? Did he say no? Did he say sometimes? Did he say maybe? What, what, what is it, Paul? All right, so let's do that one more time. But this time, we're going to walk through the text again a bit more slowly. And let's kind of see if we can dig out what it says in the different bits, right? And so... Uh, from chapter 10, verse 1. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. What, what is he talking about? What, what, what is this alluding to? So he's kind of drawing upon the Exodus story, remember, where the people of Israel were brought out of Egypt um, under Moses. And so what he's saying is, look, 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 look back, stop and think about the example of Israel. In the same way that Israel was saved out of slavery under Moses, we are saved in this era by Jesus Christ. Our Israel's salvation by Moses, it, it foreshadows, it hints towards, it's somehow kind of connected towards our salvation by Christ. And if that is the case, if there is that similarity, then there's reasons for us to look to Israel's example and learn things from them. 
verse 3. And all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, the rock of Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, and they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now, now, now what's he talking about here? So you remember the Exodus and the wandering stories, right? Bits where, uh, you know, they had uh, escaped from the Egyptians, and now they grumbled because they didn't have water. And uh, Moses, like, cut a rock, and then got water out of it. And, you know, they grumbled for food, and uh, Moses prayed, and, uh, you know, food from heaven, manna and quail, and, and uh, came uh, and fed them. And so Paul now looks at those things, those events, and he begins describing them using very peculiar words. He calls it spiritual meat and spiritual drink. That's never used to talk about that, those events elsewhere in the Bible. But he's now beginning to use the language that the Corinthians were using to talk about the Holy Communion, the, the bread and the wine. He's using that language and he's now projecting it backwards upon what happened back then. And, and the point of all of this is this, that for us, the spiritual food, the spiritual drink is our exercise of the Holy Communion. He sees a shadow of that in the Israelites being fed and watered in the desert. And he says, look, Israel's spiritual food and drink, it didn't make them immune to judgment. It didn't make them immune to sin. It didn't make them immune from suffering. And in the same way, we, we shouldn't think of our spiritual food and drink, our communion as something that's, that's somehow kind of magic food that will make us immune to judgment, immune to sin, immune to suffering. And I, I guess most of the time we, we don't need to worry about this. It's not a, a belief that we, that we struggle with here. But, but I've seen that elsewhere. And I, I think a couple of years ago, you know, when there's the Fukushima nuclear disaster in Japan and there's some worries about nuclear, uh, you know, like uh, nuclear fallout and radiation poisoning, there's a bunch of people who are like, oh, don't worry, you, don't, you won't get radiation sickness as long as you eat the bread and the wine like three times a day. And that's magical thinking, you know, that's, that's thinking that somehow there's a special mechanical significance of the, uh, of the bread and the wine that it doesn't have. Now, our practice of the communion is, is one of the most important things that we do within the Christian life. The, the Eucharist, the, 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 the Lord's Supper is of tremendous spiritual significance. But the way that it exercises that significance in us is through our remembrance of Jesus' death for us, our remembrance of his second coming. It's not magic food that has got special properties. It's not like when we buy it from the shop, it comes with a little halo around it. It's not as if like the wine, right? Like if you put it somewhere, there'll be flowers that bloom around it. That's not the case. Just regular bread and wine. But it takes on a certain significance because of what we do, because of what we remember, because of the words spoken over it, because of the ceremony. It's, it's the venue, it's not the menu that, that makes that special. Right? So, now these things took place, what happened to the Israelites, these things took place that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters. Some of them were, and as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and blah, blah, blah. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And this happened. We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and then this happened. We must not grumble, as some of them did, and they were destroyed by the destroyer. Now, these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction, 
on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. Now, what's Paul pointing to over here? Learn from Israel's example. Israel wasn't immune to idolatry or to those other sins, to, uh, to, to, to grumbling and, and sexual immorality. And neither are we. That the spiritual food and drink that we take doesn't make us immune to sin. It doesn't make us special and wonderful. Nothing, almost nothing that you do within the church service makes you special and wonderful and Christian. What you do at 1.30 p.m. when you get out of here, that's what decides, you know, wh whether you're a believer in Christ and makes it, whether you're holy or you're not. Verse 14, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. So he's saying, look, all, all of this I'm going to teach you, but Actually, it's, it's not rocket science, you know. I'm going to ask you to think about what you do in your churches, and you'll find that it actually is quite self-evident, right? You can actually figure it out yourself. So judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? When you are doing communion with the wine and the blood and the wine and the bread, is that not participation in Christ? Is that not a form of worship? Because there's one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake in that one bread. Through, through that ceremony of sharing in that, in that bread, is that not something special and spiritual and significant that binds us together as one? Or if you're not thinking about communion, think about what happens with Israel and how they, when they eat the food on the altar, that is a form of worship to God. And if that is true, if us eating and drinking the communion is a form of worship to our God. If the Israelites eating the meat on the altar is a form of worship to Israel's God, then is it not the case that you going out and eating at an idol's altar, that is worship of that God as well? Right? It's, it's not rocket science. It's not complicated. So what Paul's saying here is some forms of eating and drinking, like the communion, like Israel's temple sacrifices, that is a participation in worship. Verse 19, what, what do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Bottom line, some forms of eating and drinking are worship. And as believers, we cannot worship anything other than God. So, if we pause here, and, you know, the, the Corinthians are, are kind of asking, so is it okay, is it not okay? And it seems like it's quite clear, right? It's quite a strong no of participating in any kind of food that has been offered in some kind of idol ceremony. Let me describe to you uh, one form of food that uh, we came across, uh, Louis and my wife and I, uh, when we were in Sierra Leone in West Africa. And so there's this religion there in um, Sierra Leone where what they do is 
the, the uh, farmers, the, 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 the herdsmen, when they want to kill the animal, what they do is make sure that it faces the direction of their most important shrine. And then after that, only a person who's of that religion can do this. He'd go in and cut and kill the animal in a certain way and let it bleed to death. But at the moment that he's going to cut it, he says a prayer. He says, in the name of, you know, the, the name of his God. Now, is this not food that's dedicated to a certain idol? And if that's the case, is it not, are we not prohibited from eating that kind of food? And if our answer is yes, then what I've just described to you is basically halal food. And what you cannot eat is McSpicy. And a lot of other types of food as well, but the bottom line is if we're consistent with that, this is where this should lead us, right? So, 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 so what do we do with that? Um, verse 23. So Paul says, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any questions on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord. Everything belongs to God and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you're disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. So, verse 28, but if somebody says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it. For the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience, and I don't mean your conscience, but, but his. Verse 23 to 29 basically sums up what, what I think is the bottom line in, in all of this, right? So basically he says, look, you can eat anything. Two exceptions. One, if it's eating that in some way is participation in worship of something other than God. And two, if that eating in some way violates conscience, and that may be your conscience, the conscience of another brother in Christ, brother or sister in Christ, or the conscience of somebody who's not a believer. Now, so what does that mean for the questions that the Corinthians asked? So if it's in the temple ceremonies, that's definitely no, you can't do that. If it's food that's in the marketplace, well, mostly yes, but there are circumstances where you can't. And if it's somebody's home, it's mostly yes, some, there's times when you can't, right? So we don't go out to the marketplace and kind of figure out which one is halal, which one is done by a Hindu, which one is done by a Buddhist, and kind of make sure that we don't eat that stuff. And if you're going to somebody's home, your neighbor has invited you and has taken the trouble to prepare food for you, you don't go in there and say, eee, this one from Idol, I never eat one, and then go on to the next one, right? You can eat anything unless it's worship, unless it wounds somebody's conscience. Now, I, I want to just make a small disclaimer over here. What I've just described to you is the majority view, is the... Uh, what most scholars, how most scholars would read this. Now, there are people on both sides of this. There are those who are much more conservative than this, than the most, there are those that are much more liberal than this. There are those that are much more conservative than this and say, look, it's not worth the risk. Any kind of food that has become any kind of association with idols, we must not go near as believers. And there are those that are more liberal, those that would say, look, as long, even if it's in a temple, as long as in your heart you're not worshiping that God, it's, it's okay because you're just eating the food. You're not participating in the worship. 
And so there's a variety of views, but what I've just described to you is, is the majority view. It's the one that many scholars believe. And I have found it persuasive. I've looked at the arguments of the others. I've not found it persuasive. But if that's you, you know, if some of you either feel that you, know, you definitely can or you definitely can't eat that kind of stuff, my, my word to you is go with your conscience, and, and I'll respect that. And I hope that over time, with prayer and with study, maybe you will move towards my position or maybe I will move towards your position or we'll both move to a different position. But the, the, the point is, there is some diversity and, and I want to, to acknowledge that here. So Paul's answer was to the question of the food offered to idols, you know, in the temple or in the marketplace or at homes, can you eat or can you not eat? And there are a couple of larger implications for Christians in terms of how we, do, we deal with other types of religious practices, not just about food offered to idols, but other types of things as well. How do we relate to religious practices of our neighbors? And there are four implications. And the first two are quite, you know, no-brainers. They just come right out of the text that we read out, that we read just now. So do not participate in the worship of anything other than God. The moment you give your allegiance to Christ, when you say that He is Lord and Savior, that means that there is no other Lord, no other Savior, and you cannot worship anything other than Him. The second implication is to be guided by your conscience. There's going to be gray areas here, and nobody's going to be able to give you a good checklist as to which things exactly you can do and you can't do. But if you find that you're doing something and you're a bit uncertain, and you find yourself trying to justify it to yourself and trying to find all the good texts that you can use to kind of solve your conscience, then that's wrong for you. Be guided by your conscience. And be guided by the needs of other people's conscience, other people's consciences, uh, your other brothers and sisters in Christ, by what it does for your witness to non-believers. The, the closest example I can think of in my own life when I had to deal with this kind of issue is, um, so in case you're wondering, I'm not Chinese, right? So um, my, my, my background is Hindu. My, my, mom, my mom and dad live in India, uh, but my wife is. Um, and when we got married, uh, we went to India, um, and uh, in my part of India, where my mom and dad live, one of the biggest uh, tem Hindu temples is there. It's called the Tilay Nadraja Temple, and it's quite an important temple in that part of um, that part of India. Now, when I became a believer, when I was like 19 years old, so about 20 years now, um, after that, my mom would still continue to go to the temple, you know, uh, periodically, and I chose to follow her to the temple. But I had certain boundaries. I'd say. Mom, if you want to go to the temple, I'll come with you. I'll carry your bags. We'll go inside, go around if you need to. But there's some things that I will not do. I will not pray to the God. I will not put the, the holy ash or the symbol on my forehead. Uh, but I'll, I'll kind of be with you as you kind of go through this thing. So th th that has been for like for 20 years. And then after we got married, uh, Louis and I, so we were there and my mom wanted to go to the temple again. And so we went together. And so we went in and so we walked around, there's a lot of walking, it's a huge complex. You come to this place where there's this uh, altar in an inner room, and so we kind of walk in, and inside there's a priest over there who's doing a puja, a certain kind of ceremony. And so he does a ceremony towards the, uh, towards the idol. Uh, he say, makes certain incantations in Sanskrit, and he turns uh, uh, like, a, like a, a fire on a plate around. And then after he's finished with that, he'll kind of come out, and then there'll be like, you know, 200, uh, you know, 
people that are all kind of uh, crushed around, kind of waiting for the thing to come out. And then they'll bring the, the, the plate of flame, right? It'll kind of <laughs> go across. And what everybody would do is kind of like touch the flame and uh, touch it to their forehead. And so he's kind of coming, 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 and then it comes to me. And I'm thinking, oh, okay, fine. I just want to get this over with. So I kind of wave my hand at him, and then he kind of goes on to the next person. And uh, then it comes to Lois. And, and she's confused. She's not sure exactly what this is about or what she should do. And so I tell her, Lois, just wave your hand, and then that'll be fine. And so she does, and then she, he, he goes on. And after that, we, 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 we talked, and I, and I realized that that caused huge consternation for her, huge frustration, huge, you know, self-searching for her, because in, in my mind, it is kind of clear what I was doing, like what parts of the temple ceremony are worship, what are not worship, what I can do with a clear conscience or not, but it wasn't clear to her what things were or were not worship. It wasn't clear to her that she could do that with a clear conscience. And so, I, as the husband, I kind of brought her into this place, and I essentially pressured her to do something that wounded her conscience, and that's not okay. Um, my bad, right? Um, but but that's the kind of but but that's the kind of thing that you deal with whenever you come into these areas of um, you know dealing with uh, dealing with cultural or religious practices, right? Now on that same visit, a different thing happened as well. Now within uh, my extended uh, community, what happens is there's a practice of prostration before your elders, where you fall at their feet and get their blessings. And this is something that's, that's extremely important in, in, in our family, right? And um, so my dad, who's like 80, he falls down with his bad knees and back and kidney failure and everything. He does it to his older brother, right? Uh, who's like you know, another like 86 years old or something like that. And Lewis and I were required to, to do that. And I said, no, that I wouldn't do it for my dad or my uncle, who's like the patriarch of the family, or anybody. There's no idol here, there's no flame here, there's no worship ceremony here. Why? For, for, for me, that was important because this was a gesture that communicated that people who are of, of certain stature within the family, they are kind of divine and you must get their blessing. And for me, it, it was clear that when I've given my allegiance to Christ and He is Lord, there is no other Lord, nobody else from whom we can get that kind of blessing. And therefore, I said, sorry guys, I can't do this when we won't. And that was really, really tough socially. Like, you know, a whole extended family is like, oh, you know, the Singaporeans. Uh, but, but, but the point is that it's not always clear exactly what is, a, what is worship, what is not, what is idolatry, what is not. And some of it will really depend on your own understanding of your culture of origin, of the, of, of the, um, of the gestures. And in, and in my case, it is very clear this would be worship, and therefore we could not do that. Even though there is no idol, even though there is no flame, no priest. So do not participate in the worship of anything other than God and be guided by conscience. But there are some things that are uncertain. Now, what, what about this stuff? You know, what about going to funerals, Taoist funerals, having the patches put on you? And the answer to that is, I'm going to let you guys figure that one out, right? Because the, the, these, are, these are very deep, very nuanced, very complicated ceremonies with some significance and some with not. And I dare not pretend to understand it well enough to interpret that for you guys. Now, we spoke briefly with uh, Pastor Chiming and Pastor um, uh, Kevin and, and some of the others in the church. And they have got 
very sophisticated understandings of what is okay, not okay, why, what are the reasons behind it. And I'll just, I'll just direct you to their wisdom. They, they just know this far better than I do. They've been doing this or thinking about it far longer than I have. So, yeah. And connected to this is saying, there are these things called insider movements within missions, which I don't know if you guys have heard about, and that's especially within missions to Muslims, missions to, uh, to, to Hindus. And the idea is that there are some people who come to faith in Christ who don't call themselves, I am now a Christian. They call themselves, I am a Muslim who follows Jesus Christ, or I am a Hindu who follows Jesus Christ. And they continue to participate in some forms of their life of their community, and yet do so in a way that they try to to move or reinterpret or re-understand as being for Christ. Now, this is something that still remains controversial within the, the mission circle. There are very, very deep kind of theological and missions-related reasons for this, for saying yes or no to doing something like this. So, but I'm, I'm not going to argue one or the other position here, but I'm just going to say that, that, that that's the kind of complexity that comes up when we're talking about these types of issues. So do not participate in worship of anything other than God. Be guided by conscience. A third implication is just try not to be offensive. Now, I, I know I said right at the beginning that, you know, this is going to offend some people, and, and some of that offense is inescapable. If you're offending zero people, you're doing something wrong. If you're offending everybody, you're probably doing something wrong as well. You're just probably a really unpleasant person. But... But there's a right amount of offense that we must be giving as Christians, right? And my hope is that we will offend the right people for the right reasons, right? And, and, and kind of stay there. Uh, Paul's words, uh, verse 29 onwards, For why should my liberty be determined by somebody else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? So whether you eat or you drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. This is a picture of uh, Qingming, which I got from, from the internet, and uh, I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right, but in any case, um, and this is like five generations all kind of together doing a ceremony, you know, holding the joysticks, uh, respecting uh, an, an elder. Now, I'm, I'm not going to comment on whether or not this constitutes idolatry or not, but I do know for sure that if this whole family is here and there's this one nephew who's like standing off on this side and says, no, I'm now a follower of Jesus Christ, so I cannot do it, it, it does something to, to the family. It, it creates offense. It creates, it creates division. It creates sometimes a deep sense of betrayal. Now, I'm not saying that therefore it's not okay. It may be that that's the right kind of offense to give. But I'm saying that if we do do that, we've got to be very clear that there's a good reason to do that, right? And why we're doing that. Not just because we just want to be apart or just because we want to give offense, right? East Timor, uh, where the majority of the population is kind of animist. They, they kind of worship various things. But then there's also a significant number of people who are uh, Catholic or Christian. But often there's a lot of people who just mix the two together. Right? So um, we, we have a friend in, in East Timor, and he's kind of like a community leader. Uh, and he's Timorese, and he's a believer. 
And he has another friend who's a pastor, a Timorese pastor, who, you know, works on his farm and then uh, preaches, you know, runs cell groups, does Sunday services, baptisms and all of that. And he has one of these in front of his house, which is like weird, right? Because he's doing all of this like churchy kind of stuff, and at the same time, he still preserves the, the adherence to uh, to, to, the, to, the, uh, to, the, to the animist beliefs. And one of the things that he'd do is uh, in front of this uh, kind of an altar, there'd be a bunch of food that's put there for the idols. And every couple of days, you'll need to like change that to make sure that it doesn't go bad. And, and the belief is that that whole place is, uh, the, the term is lulik, which means kind of sacred. And this has nothing to do with like Christian sacred, just kind of spirits kind of sacred. And that, that food is tarabandu. That is... Um, uh, that is like banned food, prohibited food. People cannot eat it because it now belongs to uh, the spirits of the idols. And so my, my friend, who's a Timorese uh, you know, community leader, he's kind of talking to him over many, many months. Over, you know, what, why do you still do that? Are you not a Christian now? Why are we still doing that? And, and the pastor or the confused pastor's response was like, look, I know this is all like not very Christian, but I just kind of play it safe, right? I mean, we, we don't want to like, uh, like um, risk offending the spirits. So let's just kind of continue to do it. I just change the bananas every couple of days. No big deal, right? And so they're kind of continue to have this like back and forth for a while. And then finally, this, this friend, this community leader, um, one day he's visiting and he just, you know, grabs a banana. Nom, 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 and, and the pastor was horrified. He's like, oh no, you're going to like, you know, sprout mushrooms from your wings, from your ears, and you're going to die. Um, and he waited and he didn't die. And he asked, what, what, why did you do that? And he was like, midar, which means, oh, it is yummy. You know, so, what just happened? Now, the thing is, for, for many months, or one way that my friend could have done it is, okay, so you've got the confused pastor who's saying, look, this is real, it is powerful, it is dangerous. And my friend could have said, it is real, it is powerful, and you shouldn't do it because you're now a Christian. But instead, he just decided to go and like makan. And, and what it communicates is that it's, it's not really real, it's not really powerful, and it's just yummy. Right? Now, I'm not recommending that you do something like that. Now, if I went and did that, the whole village would probably chase me with machetes and, you know, and, and that would be the end of me. But him, as an insider within the culture, had certain reasons for believing that that is a best way to deal with this issue of the confused pastor. And in the end, a couple of months later, you know, that thing was gone, right? And, and, and that was the demonstration for him. Um, point, try not to be offensive. Sometimes it helps, right? Point number four, seek the salvation of many. Verse 32, give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Um, this is a picture, I think, that was taken right over here uh, during my wedding, like, like you know, three, four years ago now. Um, and what I want you to, and this is during the worship bit, and what I want you to do is pay attention to my mom and dad. And I, I, I know you can't see it very well, so I'm going to give you a close-up of my dad's face. So, the, the point is that 
my, my, my dad is a, is, a, is a very evangelistic missionary atheist. So in fact, he gave me a, he gave me a book that's called Why I'm Not a Christian by Bertrand Russell. And uh, my mom, she, she, she's, a very, she's a very devout Hindu, and, and, and a lot of her life revolves around that. And um, over many years, you know, my, my brother and I, we've kind of talked to her about the gospel in various ways and its implications for her life, uh, given her a Tamil Bible and all of this. And it, they've always kept things at a distance. But once in a while, they have, I mean, I think maybe less than a handful, right? They've kind of visited churches uh, to kind of see what the life of faith is. And, and they came to our church when... Um, we, we, we got married. Now, the thing is this. If that preceding 20 years, I had told my mom, there's no way I'm going to your, your, your slimy temple. Uh, there's no way I'm going to eat that yucky, you know, idol food. Uh, there's no way I'm going to come anywhere near uh, Hindu ceremonies. The, the chances of me then being able to ask them to come and just see our life of faith and them responding positively would, would have been very different. And so there's something about that reciprocity, that's something about us having the courage to walk a little bit into their life of faith that will allow us to bring them closer to our life of faith as well. Seek the salvation of many. Now, there is a warning around this as well. And the warning is this. As we think about some form of participation as an expression of love, as an expression of trying to get people to see our life of faith as well, it's really, really, really easy to slip into just the fear of man, right? Because it's uncomfortable to say no, to not participate in some things. Sometimes we may be doing so not because it's out of love, not because we're trying to bring people to understand the gospel better, just because we don't have the guts, right? Just as a lack of courage. And this is one of those things that nobody else can tell you. It's something that you're going to have to search your heart for. Am I participating or not participating as, as an expression of love? or it's an expression of cowardice. And, and that's something to sort out and be clear about. So, how should we relate to religious practices of our neighbors? You, you can eat anything unless it's worship, unless it wounds somebody's conscience. And for implications for Christians. Now, just for the last you know, two or three minutes, I just want to say a word for, for the non-Christians. And, and as I Say this, I, I say this thinking about my mamla, what, what I'd like her to be able to hear. This is what the Christian life is like. The, the reason why we say we won't do some things or we would do other things is not because when we become followers of Jesus Christ, God gives us, this Christian God gives us a, a check, new checklist of things to do or not do. If I do this, he'll, he'll, he'll hit me. If I, do, if I don't do this, that gives me extra points in, in, uh, in God's book. That, that's not the way that the Christian life works. We do this because we believe there's one God and we have given our allegiance to him. And if we believe there's one God and we worship him, we cannot do something that implies worship of something else, of anything else. And that's the reason why we don't do these things. We don't seek to offend. We don't seek to separate ourselves from our family. We don't seek to distance ourselves from your communities. That's not the reason why we're doing this. It's because we believe there's one God, and we want to follow him faithfully. And the second thing that I'd want to say to my mom or, or, or to any non-believer is that th this is what our God is like. 
it's not about a new set of rules. It's a relationship we have with this God that has died to save us, and we want to follow him. And sometimes we get things wrong. Sometimes we're not sure about exactly what to do. And he looks at our hearts, and we have that reassurance. This is what our God is like. And this God has called us to follow him. And if you don't know him, he, he calls you to follow him as well. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to close. Can I get you to rise and stand with me? Would you pray with me? Um, God, we're grateful that uh, you're God who has created all things and all things belong to you. You're God who has uh, come down to us and given yourself up for us. And you're God who, who indwells with us in your Holy Spirit. Your presence is with us all the time. And we're grateful for that. Help us to conduct our lives here and now, among all of these other brothers and sisters of, of different religions, of our neighbors of different, different religions, help us to relate to them in a way that is true to you, that never deviates from calling you and you alone God. God, give us the courage to do that. Give us the wisdom to know but what exactly we should do in various circumstances. Give us the, the love to know when we should not do some things, even if they're permitted, just because it will wound somebody else's conscience. Help us, above all else, to follow you and to follow you truly. All this we pray in Jesus' name. Thank you. Uh, service is over. See you next week.